Hello and welcome to another edition of Bill Allen's Facebook Studies. We're going through the Daily Bible in Chronological Order, edited by Eflagard Smith, and I hope that you are able to see me okay. It looks a little dark, but uh, I'm coming at you from a different spot in my office. You can see my wall back there and the books, and uh, I want you to center, if you will, on that middle um large um, wood carving. It's just above the blue shield that my wonderful friend and fellow minister Donnie Cook uh, made for me with my personal mission statement on it from Colossians 1, 28 and 29. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. So a shout out to Donnie. She is a huge blessing for us in our min children's ministry and families and on our staff and throughout our church. Um, but right above that blue shield, uh, next to that wonderful, beautiful painting, which I believe I brought back from Ukraine several years ago when I was there on a mission trip, um, there is that brown uh, wood carving with a picture from the upper room. I realize that you might not be able to see it very well, so hopefully you'll be able to scroll closer to it and uh, and then come back or do that later. But it is something that's very, very precious to me because it was in my grandma mom's home in Beach Grove, Texas on Highway 777, maybe about a quarter of a mile off the highway, um, uh, just outside of, not too far from Jasper, Texas. And uh, that was uh, my dad's uh, mother's home. That's where uh, they grew up, he and his two brothers, and where my grandma mom was living when I was a boy. It had uh, no running water. It had uh, no electricity. There was a little brown shack <laughs> out back, literally. Took a bath on the back porch in a wash tub. And uh, it was a great, great experience for a little boy from San Antonio, Texas. But uh, when my grandma mom passed away and when they um, were going through her stuff and they asked me if there anything that I would want, it was that, that wood carving, because I remember it. And it comes uh, it, on it. You can't tell from this distance, but again, hopefully you can scroll towards it. But it's got two scriptures on it, one from John 13 and one from John 15. And I wanted to point that out today, especially because as we near the end of the life of Christ, which we'll be looking at his crucifixion and his resurrection on Tuesday of next week. Uh, before we get there, I wanted us to go through these incredible chapters in the Gospel of John, starting in John 13, and then chapters 14, 15, and 16 that Jesus shares with his closest apostles, his closest disciples in that upper room after partaking of, as we said on Tuesday, what I believe was a Passover meal with his disciples. And just before they leave and they go out and they, um, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus has that prayer, which we read a tiny bit about and probably as best I can tell anyway, what, is, um, what he prays in John 17 is uh, what he prayed uh, all that night including those words, uh, not my will uh, be, be done, but your will, uh, even if it means that this cup of suffering will not 
uh, pass away from me. And so I wanted to point that out, and as we go through John 13 and then get to John 15, I'll point out the scriptures that are on that wonderful, uh, wonderful wood carving uh, that means uh, so very much to me. So I hope you're in John 13 because that's where we're going to start, and we're not going to read all of the words from these, uh, these chapters, but we'll read a lot and, uh, and share some comments along the way, starting with John 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What a great statement. Uh, he still loves us to the end. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. But as we see from uh, later in this passage, Judas was still there. And then note verse 3 of chapter 13 of John. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It's such a powerful statement, a powerful image, one that I'm sure the apostles never forgot. And none of them were jumping up to uh, wash even Jesus' feet, much less each other's. And so Jesus, the Son of God himself, uh, got up and did that. But it's, it's amazing to me how it's put here. Jesus, knowing who he was, knowing where he'd come from, knowing where he was going, even knowing all of that, he got up and he took off his clothes and he put a towel around him and he got that basin of water and he washed the dirty, stinky, sandy apostles' feet, uh, including Judas' feet, knowing full well what he was going to do, including Peter's feet, knowing full well that he was going to deny him three times knowing full well that all of them would leave him and forsake him. And I think that's, that's the key, is that he did know who he was. He did know where he came from and where he was going, and only a person that has that kind of internal uh, self-esteem uh, can feel secure enough to do the most menial tasks, and that's Jesus, and that should be us, knowing that we're created in the image of God, knowing that we are uh, his chosen people, knowing that Jesus died for our sins and that we will be home with him for eternity one day. That should enable us to do the most menial task, the, to be that servant that Jesus called us to be. That's exactly what not only Jesus did, but what he calls us to do as well. Starting in verse 12 now of John 13, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash my feet. Well, that's what we think he should say, shouldn't he? But that's not what he says. Just as I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I think John would remember that statement. And when he's writing in 1 John chapters 3 and 4, he says, because of how much Jesus has loved us, we also should love one another. It's a great statement, a great example. I have set you, verse 15, an example 
that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, John 13, verse 17, you will be blessed if you do them. Simply knowing that we're called to be servants, knowing that we're called to serve others, whatever that might mean, a literal washing of the feet, perhaps, if their feet are dirty. Um, if, we had a, if we had a foot washing ceremony at church one Sunday morning, believe me, everyone would have their feet scrubbed and cleaned. And it, even those of us that don't go and get a pedicure, we would go get one. <laughs> and that's not the purpose. The purpose is to serve to do whatever it takes to serve, whatever that might be. Jesus said, that's what I've done for you, and I'm your Lord and your teacher and your master. You should do that for one another. What an incredible, incredible call. Chapter 13 continues on, and he talks about his uh, that he's going to be betrayed. He talks about, he's been talking to them about this nearly the whole time of his ministry. But he tells them again in this upper room at this last, uh, in these last hours, of his life and he interacts with Judas and Judas leaves and the others think that he's just going to uh, get something for the the festival get something for the Passover get being in charge of the money that was his role but he also took some of the money himself and what they didn't know that Jesus did know is that he was going to let the um, the Jewish leaders know that this is your chance for 30 pieces of silver but it wasn't just Judas Iscariot. In verse 31, Jesus talks to the other disciples and, and tells them, you're all going to fall away on, on because of me tonight. And of course, Peter says, no way, no way. And we know that Jesus uh, tells him, you'll, you'll, you'll disown me three times. You'll deny that you even know me. In Luke 22, Jesus uh, tells him, uh, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. And when you have come back, strengthen your brothers. It's an incredible statement in Luke 22 where Jesus sees ahead what, what Peter is going to do and, and even knowing that he still gives him that assurance that you'll be forgiven, you'll come back, and when you do, I will have work for you to do. And we're going to get to read that starting in the book of Acts. Well, we continue on in chapter 13 and one of the passages that's on that wood carving behind me is from John 13 verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. To love one another, Jesus says, as I have loved you. Just as he said, serve each other just as I have served you. Love one another as I have loved you. And that's his call. And that's that great verse, John 13, verse 34. And he goes on to say, everyone will know that you're my disciples. Not by your great devotion to teaching or evangelism or anything else. That has an impact and we need to be committed to those things. But ultimately, people will know because we love each other and we love others the way Jesus loved them, the way Jesus loved us. Well, John 14 continues and starts out with a very familiar passage. It's one of those that shows up in a lot of memorial services. I've used it many, many times. 
uh, chapter 14. I'll read a kind of a combination between the NIV and the traditional translation. John 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If that were not so, I would have told you. But I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. In my Father's house are many rooms. The NIV in my Father's house, love the old translation, are many mansions. And we sing that great song, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Uh, what a great, great song about heaven. Jesus tells them, he's been telling them and will continue to tell them, I'm going away and you won't be able to find me. But here he gives them that great assurance, I'm going to prepare a place for you. This is going to be good even for you, Jesus says. It's the right thing. And you don't know it now, but it'll be better for you if I go. Uh, he's going to prepare a place for us. And of course, Thomas, we see him a few times in Scripture. Of course, after the resurrection, um, when Jesus appears to the other apostles, but not to Thomas, he's not with them. He gets that name, Doubting Thomas, by saying, I, unless I can put my fingers in his, the nail holes and my hand in his side where I, that spear went through, I won't believe. And Jesus gives him that opportunity, and Thomas makes a great confession here he asks the question, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And then this wonderful, wonderful and significant statement in John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way. One of those great I am statements found in the Gospel of John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, verse 6. Not a very popular statement in 21st century America. Everyone wants to say, well, just believe what you want because we all worship the same God. We're all going to the same place. It's all good. Just do whatever your heart tells you to do. Jesus never, never affirms that belief. In fact, he here and many other places in the Gospels affirms exactly the opposite. I am the way. The truth, not your truth, my truth, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We try to share that lovingly. We try to share that considerately and respectfully and, and humbly, recognizing only by the grace of God can we get to that, to that way and to the Father. But at the same time, we share that firmly because it is the word of God and there's no other way to the Father there's no other Savior, there's no other person, no other so-called God that we could go to um, that can take us to the Father, that can give us life, that can show us the truth, that can help us on the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And of course, Philip now, also another one we've seen a few times, says, show us the Father and that'll be enough. <laughs> and you can almost hear Jesus' frustration in John 14, starting in verse 9. Philip, don't you know me? I've been with you all this time and you still don't know me. If you have seen me, Jesus says, you've seen the Father. Any other person saying that would be guilty of blasphemy, which they will ultimately accuse Jesus of for making statements just like that. 
But in Jesus' case, it wasn't blasphemy at all because he was God. He was the Son of God. If you've seen the Father, Jesus says, you've seen me. And that should be enough. It's an amazing thing that Jesus goes on um, to tell them. And then in John 14, verse 15, we really begin to hear Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, uh, the original uh, transliteration paraclete, the advocate in the NIV. Verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, John 14, verse 18. I will come to you. It's just an amazing passage. Jesus says, look, I'm going away, but I'm going to send you another Comforter. This is going to be someone who continues the work and ministry of Christ, the advocate, the comforter, um, the spirit of truth, he says in verse 17. Uh, and he says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What the Holy Spirit does today is he continues the ministry and the presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'll come back to you. I'll come back and get you in the end times, that's for sure, at the end of the world. But long before that, I will be present with you, but in the form of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'll still be with you. And he promises that at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, as you know, when he gives us that great commission, he says, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. When he was born, it was a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. His name was Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Here he says that same thing, and that presence continues even today through the Holy Spirit of God. It's just an incredible statement. Um, verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, the other Jew, not Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Verse 23, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Do you see a pattern in this passage? My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Throughout this passage, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my teaching. The one who doesn't obey my teaching doesn't love me. And we hear so often today, oh yeah, Jesus never required us to do anything. All he did was love us and die for us. He never, he never told us how we should live. He never excluded us because of our actions. And that is completely wrong, completely wrong. Jesus himself says here, if you love me, you will obey my teaching. And if you don't obey, then you don't love me. And I realize none of us obeys perfectly. He's not talking about that. In fact, that's why he dies on the cross. But the question is, am I seeking to know his word and to obey it? One of the things we just read in the past week was from John 12 that said, I, I, don't, I haven't come to judge the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects my teaching. 
the very word I spoke, that very teaching I made, Jesus says in John 12, will condemn them in the last day. Here he says over and over again, if you love me, you will obey my teaching. If you don't care what Jesus taught and you don't seek to live according to his will, not your own, Scripture says that your love for him is called into question. In fact, you don't. If you refuse to seek his will, to learn his will, and the very best you can to, to follow that will, to put your will behind you. Throughout Scripture, in the Gospels, Jesus had said, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to deny yourself, not fulfill your every whim, your every desire, You've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross, just like Jesus will, and follow me. Far cry from what we hear today. And it's a hard teaching, and none of us measures up. But thankfully, through what we're about to read, what we're reading this week, in fact, the death of Christ on the cross, the blood that was shed for us, we can be saved. We can be forgiven. It's an incredible, incredible statement. As Jesus says, he speaks some more about the Holy Spirit, and then he speaks to us in John 15. By the way, a great book on the Holy Spirit is by Tim Woodruff, A Spirit for the Rest of Us. Uh, I'm not sure that that's the current title, but uh, he wrote that book several years ago. And it talks about two extremes. One extreme of the Holy Spirit, which is the charismatic extreme, which is mostly affiliate, associated with, with uh, Pentecostal church members, but uh, most every uh, Christian faith has some charismatic Christians in it, have some uh, charismatic believers who believe that these miraculous gifts of the first century church uh, were for all of us, and we're going to see in Acts that that's just not the case. Um, but then there's another extreme, and that is the extreme that uh, says there's really no Holy Spirit at all, no presence of Christ with us today. And and Tim Woodruff in his book rejects both of those extremes. And he says, I need a spirit for the rest of us, for those of us who acknowledge the Holy Spirit's presence today, but who also don't find him under every rock and in every uh, action. And I go along with that as well. So John 15, this great passage, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And that pruning is not very fun. I know, I know. But it helps us to be more productive, to more, be more fruitful, to be more like Christ. Verse 3, you're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, verse 4. Abide in me as I also remain or abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain or abide in me. Verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, verse 7, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Three times in, this, in these chapters, Jesus says something like that. We saw in chapter 13, if you love me, 
then you will truly be my disciples and the world will know here if you are bearing fruit and in um, uh, in chapter 17 during his prayer he says the whole world will know that they are my disciples if if they are one if you keep them unified as he prays to the father um, here he talks a lot about bearing fruit and that's a that's a great passage it's a great call some say that he's talking about uh, making other Christians, helping to people come to know the faith and baptizing them, and could certainly well be that. But remember, um, Jesus is the vine. We're the branches, and the branches don't produce other branches. As Terry Russia said, the branches produce fruit. Well, what is that fruit then that will help us to see other branches come and be uh, added to this tree, this vine? Well, I look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and all the other characteristics that Jesus has called us to act and to have and to live by, starting from our hearts. Um, that's the kind of fruit that he wants us to bear, first of all, and that fruit will allow us to be able to have that impact on others so that they will be interested in hearing this message and ultimately as they hear of this one who died for them they will ask the question that's asked asked so many times in the book of acts what do i do what shall we do and we can tell them the same answer that they gave in the book of acts to believe and to repent to change their lives to confess that faith and to be baptized into this one who died for them uh, we can bear that kind of fruit as well if we remain and abide in the vine, if we remain and abide in Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 15, verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Again, verse 10, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. That obedience is, is essential. Jesus hits it time and time again here in his last words just before his death. I have told you this, verse 11, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. John 15, verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's the other passage that's right behind me on that wood carving. That passage from John 13, as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And then this passage in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down their lives for their friends. And Jesus says, that's exactly what I'm doing. In fact, Paul takes it even stronger in Romans chapter 5, when he says, some people might very well die for a good person, but God commends his love for us in this while we were still sinners while we were his enemies christ died for us uh, and throughout these verses that follow jesus affirms that they are his friends he has gotten to know them he has letting them get to know him and he does the same for us what a friend we have in jesus that old hymn says my mother's favorite hymn what a friend we have in Jesus. This is my command, verse 17, love each other. And then he has some hard words 
uh, starting in John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. That makes sense, doesn't it? As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Jesus tells us it's going to get hard. And he tells us that again uh, in chapter 16, starting in verse 1. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue, <clears throat> Jesus tells his apostles. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. Jesus doesn't promise us that everything will go well, that if we'll just follow him and serve him and obey him, everyone will like us, everyone will be supportive, everyone will respond. In fact, just the opposite. He tells his apostles they're gonna, there's going to be a time when people will, will think that by killing you, they're being obedient to God. They're offering service to God. It's an incredible warning, but he's told them that before. He's told us that before in passages like Matthew chapter 10. And in that passage and others, he says, stand firm to the end. Don't give up. Um, and he encourages his apostles here and us as well to do the same. Uh, John chapter 16 continues, and he goes back and forth with them after warning them about this, after promising them the spirit, after uh, telling them to love each other. And... Um, and he continues on, verse 27 of John 16, The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. But as he has said, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm bringing the Holy Spirit, that comforter, that advocate. Um Jesus says in verse 32, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone for my Father is with me. We remember the words from the cross, quoting from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How alone Jesus must have felt. And then this great verse, another great verse in this passage, John 16, verse 33 I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. It's an incredible statement. In this world you will have trouble. There are so many today that don't believe that, that don't believe that. They think that if I just believe in Jesus, everything's going to be fine and I'll be happy. And uh, some even believe I'll be wealthy, I'll be healthy. All the news I get will be good. That's just not the case. It wasn't the case for Jesus. It wasn't the case for the early church. And it's not the case necessarily for us. When it happens, we praise him and we're grateful. We don't, we're not masochists. We don't want to suffer. But at the same time, we know that the world will always be the world and it always has been. And in the world, Jesus says, you will have trouble. 
you will have trouble, but take heart. He says, I have overcome the world. And that gives us great pause and we want to rejoice and go, yes, but how did he do that? How did he do that? How did he overcome the world? He did that through the cross. He did that by sacrificing himself, by giving his life. Instead of calling down thousands and legions of angels to take him down off the cross so that everyone would believe in him, he submitted to that cross. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. And he gave his life voluntarily, just like he had said he would in John chapter 10, as the good shepherd. In the world you'll have trouble, he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I hope you commit John 16, verse 33 to memory. It's one of those verses that we need to remind ourselves of on a regular basis. I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In the world you'll have trouble, not peace, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Even in the midst of that trouble, in our hearts we can be at peace. And that gets us to our last chapter that we'll look at today, John chapter 17. It's that high priestly prayer, as it's called, uh, perhaps the very prayer that Jesus spoke while he was in the garden. Um, and, uh, and he begins by calling on the Father, and it's the words that ring throughout eternity. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. We saw that in John chapter 12 when those Gentiles were brought to Jesus and he said, the hour has come. And here he reaffirms that, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that I may glorify you. That should be our prayer as well, that God would be glorified in all that we say and in all that we do. Verse five, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Hebrews chapter 1 begins with that, that great ascension of Christ, going back to the very throne room of the Father, back to where he had come from, and taking the blood of the sacrifice, his own blood with him, to atone for our sins. An incredible, incredible image. And then Jesus prays, and the prayer is really uh, in three different sections. We saw the first one in the first few verses praying for himself, but not, not to be spared the suffering that was before him, but rather to have the Father glorify his name. And again, as he had said earlier, as the other gospel writers record, not my will, but yours be done. And then in verses six and following, he prays for his apostles, for those disciples that were right there with him during his physical life here on earth. Um, and so then he comes to verse 13. As he prays for them, he says this to the Father, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, John 17, verse 14, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Incredible passage. Incredible passage. I gave them your word, Jesus tells the Father, and the world has hated them for it. 
which is no surprise because they hated me and they hated the word that I spoke, Jesus says. And so, of course, they're going to hate the disciples as well. And it reminds us that we have a calling to be faithful to that truth. Jesus says, I, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. And I want to say, yes, please do that. Instead, quite the opposite, he says, I'm sending them into the world, into this world where they'll have trouble, into this world where they will be hated, but into this world that needs the love of God. And to see that and to know that and to hear it from us. And in that, we will be set apart. We will be sanctified. And Jesus says it will be by the word of God. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Again, I am the way and the truth and the life. John begins his gospel in chapter 1 by telling us that uh, Jesus came full of grace and truth. We can't soft sell that. It's, it's the word of God. But Jesus says that it's that truth, that word that will sanctify us and that does sanctify us. And, uh, and he will be with us as well. And then in verse 20, he begins to pray for us. My prayer is not for them alone, speaking of his immediate apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us, that's you and me. But what does he pray? Verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. How important is Christian unity? It's vital. It's essential. The sin of division is a horrible sin. And granted, there are some that we have more in common with than others, but we have that sense of unity that God has given us. And Ephesians chapter 4 says we are to maintain and uphold that spirit of unity in the bond of peace. I realize that Satan uses this as good a tool as any to try to split the church and try to divide members. And even though we have our differences, may not even be able to worship together with some. It doesn't mean that we don't have some degree of unity. Jesus says the world will know that you're my disciples. If you have unity, if you are one, may they be one in us, Father, just as I am in you and you are in me. May they be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus says uh, we need to do a better job of that. We need to do a better job of having some kind of relationship and unity between us and our individual congregations, between multiple congregations some kind of unity with all who believe in Jesus because that unity is what the world needs right now and it's uh, it's a it's a very difficult time in this world we'll have trouble and we see that that's bad and getting worse and we need each other we need each other we need our fellow believers we need to stand for the truth and remember that if we love Jesus we'll obey his teaching but remember that this is a part of his teaching. May they be one, Father, just as I am in you and you are in me. May they be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. Well, I, I wish I could go on and on. And I've been a little bit longer than I normally am. But I wanted to cover all these chapters today. This incredible, incredible passage from John 13 through John 17. On Tuesday, we'll take a look at the betrayal, the arrest, the denials, the trials, 
the crucifixion, and the resurrection as we close out these gospel stories about Jesus and his life here on this earth. I have come, John 10 says, that they might have life and have it to the full. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And again, these two passages back here, John 13, that calls on us to love each other the way Christ has loved us. And John 15, that says there's no greater love than this, that a person would give his life for the sake of his friends, for others. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's what he calls us to do for others. I pray that you'll have a good weekend. I will see you on Tuesday. God bless.